Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. And just for the record, I am the older brother. <laughs> and, and my brother is right now away and traveling. I actually have his children with me for the coming week with my, my wife and I. Uh, I've been married for about uh, 18 years now and have four wonderful children. They couldn't make it. They would have loved to be here. But we also have a small church. And when I travel, sometimes they opt to stay at our home church up in Englewood. It doesn't come as a surprise when I say that there are a lot of people who don't have confidence in our government. And this isn't really something new in America or in the history of the world, is it? Regardless of the administration, you go back to the previous administration, right or wrong, there were people who didn't have confidence in that administration. And why is it? Because at the end of the day, they look at the leaders and they say they don't make the best decisions. They don't always know what is good and what's right and what's just. And they're not always making decisions based on proper values and proper understanding of right and wrong. Have you ever thought what a blessing it would be, how amazing it would be to be in a land ruled by someone every single time they make a decision, it's the best decision that could possibly be made for that country, for that nation, for that people. How blessed they would be. And you probably think to yourself, well, yeah, that would be amazing, but there's no such place as that. There's no such nation. And I would say this, I would beg to disagree. There is a nation. It's called the nation of Israel, and it's ruled by the wisest king that there ever was, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to come and understand from the Holy Scriptures what his reign is all about and how it's such a blessing to his people. I ask that you turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to the Old Testament to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Kings chapter 3. And follow with me as I read, beginning at verse 3 through verse 15. This is the famous story, many of you children might even remember this, of Solomon asking that the Lord would give him wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 3, this is the holy, inerrant, infallible, inspired word of the living God, which lives and abides forever. Take heed how you hear. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant therefore an understanding mind, to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life, or riches, or the life of your enemies, 
but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us seek the Lord's help again as we look into this word this morning. Let us pray. Lord, your word is great and it's spiritually discerned and we pray that you would give us your spirit that he would illumine it to our hearts and our minds. Lord, we, we don't want to come here and, and just hear words read. We want them to impact our hearts, impact our lives. We want to be changed by your word. We want to leave this place more conformed to your image, more prepared to serve you in this world. And we ask then that you would cause us to listen with diligence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we study this part of God's word this morning... First, let us see the making of a wise king. The making of a wise king. Solomon here stood on the threshold of a new era in his life. Solomon is introduced to us in 2 Samuel 12 when he's born, but you don't really hear anything else about him. He's just a normal kid growing up. Nothing stupendous, nothing incredible, nothing great. And until just five verses previous to what we read, He's not even mentioned until the events surrounding his coming to the throne in Israel, the events surrounding his being anointed as king and the death of his father, David. So what had he done before this? Nothing very significant. There's no record of his actions. There's only record of the actions of people surrounding him who were trying to maneuver him into the position of the throne, whether that's his mother or father or Nathan the prophet planning his succession to the throne. So it's safe to say that in the life of this young man, Solomon, becoming king of Israel was going to usher in a very significant change in his life, a whole new era in his life and in the life of the kingdom of Israel. Now Solomon sensed his great inadequacy to handle this work. It wasn't as though he said, oh, king, sure, like, Let let me just step into the throne, and it'll be easy. It'll be smooth sailing. Being a king is a big deal. Being a ruler of a nation is hard. It's hard work. And Solomon sensed, first of all, his great inadequacy in connection with his person. Now, no doubt, Solomon was trained the way a king would be trained. No doubt, he'd received a good education and had been raised in the court, right? His dad was king. But in 1 Kings here, chapter 7, of chapter 3, verse 7, he describes himself as a little child, right? He's not flattering himself. Right? He's saying, I'm inexperienced. I'm just a little kid. What do I know about ruling a kingdom? Uh, for those of you who are familiar with The Lion King, some of you young people might know that, that Disney movie, The Lion King, and you have Simba, who he's, he's going to be coming up to the throne. He has a lot of confidence. I can't wait to be king. And Zazu, the bird who's with him, is like, listen, you're not ready to be king yet. The, the kingdom will be in trouble if you step into the throne right now. You've got to be trained. Solomon's not like Simba. 
He, he could wait, as it were, to be king, using the words of the song. Right? He, he could wait. He knows he's not prepared yet. He's a young boy. What does he know about ruling a nation? And uh, he, he was probably about 18 to 24 years old. I don't want to give you the wrong impression. It's not like he's a boy king. But even at 18 to 24, contrary to a lot of teenagers, young adults, who maybe think they're ready to take on the world, watch out world, Solomon was like, I better watch out. This is going to be a tough job for me. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 1, when David speaks to the assembly in Jerusalem shortly before his death, he refers to Solomon as someone who is young. David knows what he's getting into. This is not a secret. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7, at the end of that verse, not only does he say, I'm but a little child, he says, I don't know how to go out or come in. And what that phrase probably is referring to is the most basic, elementary, rudimentary parts of what it means to be king. Going out, coming in, the day-to-day activities. I don't even know how to do these. I feel inept. I feel incompetent. I feel unprepared. Going out and coming in, I don't even know how to do that. In First Chronicles chapter 29, you don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll turn there. But David, again, uh, gives his son an interesting vote of confidence in a public speech that he's giving. We read in First Chronicles 29, verse 1, David says this, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. It's like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> don't, don't worry, this man that's about to take over the throne, he's inexperienced. I mean, what, what CEO of a, of a Fortune 500 company would say, don't worry, I'm turning the, the, the reins of this company over to someone who's inexperienced? The stock would plummet, right? That's what David said. You can imagine Solomon sitting there. Well, he would probably say, yeah, that's right. I am. I am inexperienced. Solomon was humble in this sense. But not only did he sense his great inadequacy to handle the task in connection with his own person, but also in view of the task itself. He says, who is able to govern this great people? At the end of verse 9, who is able to govern this great people? He looks at the job. Right? Sometimes there are certain jobs that you might have that even the youngest, the most, the smallest, the most inexperienced, most untalented here could perform. Solomon looks at the job and says, not only am I young and inexperienced, this is hard work. First of all, he's dealing with people. People. I mean, any of you who have jobs with people, whether you're a parent whether you're an HR director at a company, I mean, people, hard jobs. You just ask Donald Trump, ask Joe Biden, Congress, the Supreme Court, governing human beings is a hard job. We don't make it easy on our rulers. There's all kinds of problems. Exhibit A, see the story that follows this story that we read in 1 Kings chapter 3, where these two women, these two prostitutes come to the king with this situation. How does this even happen? And you read the headlines in a country, and it's like, these things are wild and crazy. You can't make this stuff up. Governing people is hard. Solomon knew that. No doubt he had seen people come into the court, come in for judgment. He had heard the reports of the things his dad was handling. This is not something I want to be involved in. It's hard work governing people. But not only are they people, they're numerous people. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 8, Solomon describes them as a people too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. For those of you who are parents, you have one or two kids, it's a handful. Imagine ruling a nation full of, full of people, many of whom are unruly and 
don't want to listen and think they know better, right? Solomon looks out, and there's this huge, vast amount of people. In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 9, which is a parallel passage to this, Solomon says this, he describes them as a people too numerous, or as numerous as the dust of the earth. It's a lot of people. But they're also God's people. Now this puts, puts a lot of weight on his job. This isn't just any old ragtag group of people. This is the people of God. The apple of the eye of the ruler of the universe, Jehovah. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Israel. He has this special chosen treasure, his people. The greatest people in the world. And Solomon's supposed to rule them? This is, this is tough. This is hard. Solomon says, these are your people. In verse 8, your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. The special elect people of God. This is not easy. But then Solomon says they're people that need to be governed. They're people that need to be governed. And this is a hard job. What it meant to be a king in that day. You know, listen, America is great in many ways. We have the division of responsibility, right? The division of authority in our government. The three, the three branches of government, legislative, judicial, and executive. I almost had a mind blank there for a second. But in ancient Near Eastern culture, the king was in a sense all three of those wrapped into one. Not exclusively. Listen, Solomon was wise. He set people up. There was judges in different areas. He, he had people reporting to him. He, no doubt he delegated as a wise king would. But Solomon is really, at the end of the day, he has all the power. He's the one making laws, executing laws. He was the Supreme Court. He is the Secretary of State. He is the Commander-in-Chief, right? That's, that's the nature of a king. So again, Solomon looks at this, and he's like, this is a hard job. And in the midst of all this seeming helplessness that he's feeling, inadequacy. Solomon hears God's call to him. Now, frequently in Scripture, God's people are driven by a sense of inadequacy to pray to God. That's not what happens here. God takes the initiative. God comes to Solomon and says, what can I do for you? In verse 5, God said, ask what I shall give to you. I mean, what the grace of God here, right? The mercy of God. Coming, taking the initiative. Solomon, what can I do to help now, of course, God loved his people. He wanted this to be success. God was luring, as it were, Solomon to pray to him. And as Solomon prays, he recounts God's faithfulness to his people in the past. As he says in verse 6, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love. So Solomon is recounting God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to his promises. What Solomon is doing here, he's adoring God in prayer. You say, well, why, Solomon, why do you have to mention this when you pray to God? God knows this, right? He's not, as it were, sort of prepping God for some great request, like, God, you know, you're such a good God. You're such an awesome God. You've kept covenant. Now I have something to ask you. No, God's the one who came to him. God wants to do him good. Solomon is adoring God in prayer. Solomon is confessing, Lord, you are a covenant God, you are a faithful God. I have confidence in you. And the Solomon prays, it's interesting, right? God says to Solomon, what can I do for you? But Solomon's concerns are all bound up primarily with the people. The people. 
Solomon says, Lord, as it were, whatever you do for me, I just want it to be so that I bless your people. So I am a good ruler toward your people. So I govern your people well. I'm just a servant, he's saying. I'm just a public civil servant. I, I, I want to do good to your people. I want to do right by them. I want the kingdom and the people in the kingdom to prosper. And then Solomon then, as a result of that concern of his, he asks God for wisdom to discern between good and evil as he ruled the kingdom. We read that he asks for a wise and discerning and understanding heart. This is a request for wisdom. As God says in verse 12, he says, Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. God knew that's what you're asking for. When he asked in verse 9, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern, God said, you're asking for wisdom. That's what you need, and that's what you're asking for. Solomon wanted wisdom day by day so that when decisions came across his throne, as it were, when they came across his desk, Solomon would know what is the very best thing that I can do. That's what wisdom is. It's knowing and doing the best thing. Solomon didn't want to be making bad decisions, decisions that would harm the people, harm the kingdom. That's ultimately what, this, what wisdom is. And he sensed his need for, to discern and to understand so that he could govern and rule properly. Now, you might be tempted to think that his request, because he says, I want to discern between good and evil, that his request is limited to matters of morality. It's like, well, Solomon, you know, I, I guess you're just asking for wisdom in specific situations where there's a moral dimension to what you're doing and to what you're governing. You know, probably 80% of what you do won't have moral dimensions, but when it's between good and evil, you want wisdom. Solomon would have said, that is a false dichotomy. Everything I do has to do with good and evil. Every decision we make has to do with good and evil. He knew that every ruling he gave, every law, every decision, every judgment had something to do. It touched in some way, touched in some way on good and evil. Now think of what Solomon could have asked for, right? And God mentions this. God knows what Solomon could have asked for. He says you could have asked for long life in verse 11 of chapter 3, or riches, or the life of your enemies. And when you think about this, you shouldn't understand these things as like, wow, these would be so selfish if you asked for that. Maybe, but not necessarily. I mean, if the enemies of the king of Israel were, were killed, that's good for the kingdom. If the, if the king is rich, that's good for the kingdom. If the king lives long, that's good for the kingdom. But the, these are things that could be construed in many ways as being very good for the kingdom, which is why God gives them to Solomon later. In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 11, again, the parallel passage, God also adds to it, um, you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life. So he adds in there the, the idea of honor. Solomon was not asking for those things, even though those things would benefit, for the king, would benefit the kingdom. So why did Solomon ask for what he did? He knew that above and beyond everything else, the greatest priority of the kingdom of Israel, the best thing he could do for his people, was to avoid evil and do good was to promote good and condemn evil. That's the very best thing that could happen in the kingdom of Israel. More than anything else, a king in a kingdom that has this right, 
that has this down pat, is discerning properly between these two extremes, that's going to be a kingdom that prospers. That's going to be a kingdom that succeeds. And Solomon knew that doing the best for the kingdom, doing the best for the people in the kingdom, will always mean, at a very minimum, opposing evil and promoting good. So that's what Solomon asked for. Now, how did this affect his reign? What was the practical outflowing of the wisdom that he then possessed? Well, secondly, we see then in the sermon this morning the rule of a wise king. So we saw first the making of a wise king, now the rule of a wise king. And we see this in a, even beginning in the story that we read in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. Solomon knows there's going to be a connection. He says in verse 9, Give me an understanding mind to govern your people. He knows if I have an understanding mind, if I'm wise, I can govern well. I can rule well. But specifically, what types of things? Well, in the story that followed, I've already made reference to it. It's given as an illustration of some of the practical benefits that came upon the people because of Solomon's wisdom. He makes this judgment between these two women. Both had their, but well, one of the child died. They both had children. One of them died. They were disputing whose child is the living one. He makes the whole split the baby decision. It reveals the true mother. And this is what it says at the end of it. Verse 28. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king. Because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. One of the, one of the ways that wisdom evidenced itself was injustice being promoted in the land. What's another way? Again, if you have your Bible, we're going to turn kind of quickly through the book of 1 Kings here. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 34. We read this, and, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Turn with me over to uh, verses 24 and 25 of that same chapter. This speaks here of the peace and the safety of, of those who lived in Israel. For chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. For he that Solomon had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tipsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, even from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Turn with me over to 1 Kings chapter 10. Again, as we see the blessings that resulted from Solomon's wise reign. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 8. This is the Queen of Sheba speaking about those who were the, the happy citizens of Solomon. He says, verse 8, Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. But then also she speaks of the blessing that Solomon's reign is to all of Israel. In verse 9, immediately following, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and has set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. In other words, Solomon's reign promoted justice. It promoted righteousness. Solomon's reign also resulted in great wealth coming upon the people. In a day when people... we. I mean, economics is such a big thing. Inflation, right? I mean, it's all in our minds probably. Uh, here was a reign where the people prospered. 
They don't have to worry about mortgage rates rising and inflation eating away their paychecks and the price of eggs going up. Some of the things we might be thinking about. First, uh, sorry, first, sorry, Second Chronicles chapter one verse fifteen. I said First Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter one verse fifteen. We read this, and the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. I mean, it's like everybody was content. Probably most significant about the reign of Solomon, and, and maybe I could ask you this even, when we think of the reign of Solomon, what was the crowning height of his reign? I don't think that's a hand being raised. What was the crowning height of his reign? The temple. The temple. That, that, that like dominates how he built God's house. David wanted it to do it, but God said, no, your son will build me the house. He built the temple. The wise king was promoting the worship of God like no other king did. He built God a house. The glory of God filled the temple. He was promoting true worship. Now think about this. This was the reign of Solomon. All this was abounding, the worship of God, wealth, justice, righteousness. This would be a nation to live in, wouldn't it? In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 26, in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 26, it says this, after Hezekiah celebrated or led the people in the celebration of the Passover, there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. That, that was the height of civilization in Israel, you could say. And we could definitely say, as we read the rest of the story of the Old Testament, Solomon's reign was the height of geopolitical Israel's economic and political prominence. Generally speaking, it was characterized by righteousness and justice, as well as the worship of God and the Passover. And it would have been amazing to live there. I mean, people would have reflected back on this time and said, wow, that was the time we want to turn back the clock to. That's the time we would wish we could relive. His reign, his rule. And dear people of God, as you think about that, let me tell you this. As great as Solomon's reign was, there is a greater king, a wiser king who reigns over Israel, and his name's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's any kingdom that you should desire to be part of, if there's any kingdom that you should rejoice in being part of, it's the reign of the king of Israel, the wisest king of Israel. Now, let me show you the connections here, because this is really what the story of Solomon is all about. It's pointing to the ultimate son of David. Jesus is the son of David with capital S and a capital D. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. In Matthew chapter 29, verses 9 and 15, again, speaking to the fact that Jesus is the son of David, the son that Solomon pointed to. It says, and the crowds that went before him, that's Jesus, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. In other words, the chief priests were mad because they knew this title, son of David, carried with it a lot of significance. It didn't just mean, oh, you, you kind of had a long descent from the line of David. If you traced your genealogy back, 
you know, some of these genealogy trackers we have in our day, uh, I forget the name of it, it's slipping my head, you know, you can find out your ancestry, ancestry.com, right? There it is. That Solomon, or Jesus could trace his ancestry back to, to David. That's not the point. They knew this was the title for the Messiah. The son of David was a title given to the Messiah. And when they heard the children saying this about Jesus, they were indignant. They thought it was like blasphemy. They're saying this guy is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one? Forget it. He is the son of David. And it was, this was all in fulfillment of the prophecy given back in 2 Samuel 7 when God spoke to David saying through the prophet, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that was in a very small way fulfilled in Solomon. It was ultimately fulfilled in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of David. But Jesus is also the king of Israel. Not just the son of David, he's the king of Israel. John chapter 12, verses 13 to 15. Again, this, this uh, triumphal entry passage. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. Sitting on a donkey's colt. He is the king of Israel. This is why Nathaniel, at the very outset of Jesus' public ministry, in John chapter 1, verse 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. John chapter 1, verse 49. And then in Matthew 27, 37, though the people who did it thought they were insulting him, they didn't realize they were speaking more truth than they realized when written above him on the cross was this, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Because he was the king of Israel. Now when I say that, you might be thinking in your mind, wait a minute. Is, what is Israel? I mean, he's the king of Israel? According to the word of God, true Israel is not ethnic but spiritual. And this is a key concept you have to grasp. True Israel is not ethnic but spiritual. That's why we read in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. I don't know all of you. I'm assuming that many of you here are true Jews. And many of you here, Paul would describe as someone who's a Jew inwardly, whose hearts have been circumcised by the spirit. He goes on in Romans chapter 9. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, not all who are ethnic Jews are really true Israelites. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the offspring. Uh, there are people in here, you're not ethnic Jews, you are really Abraham's children. Galatians 3, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Galatians 3, 29, If you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And Jesus answered those who were insulting him, saying, Oh, we have God as our father. Who's your father, Jesus? Jesus said to them, when they said Abraham is our father, Jesus said to them in John 8, 39, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. In other words, Jesus was saying, it doesn't matter the blood that flows through your veins. It matters about the faith that's in your heart that results in the works of your life. That'll demonstrate if you're really Abraham's children. 
So when we say Jesus is the son of David, Jesus is the king of Israel, we're talking about spiritual Israel, true Israel, not ethnic Israel. Now, of course, there are some who are in both categories, praise God. But then Jesus possessed wisdom. And this was going to be one of the distinguishing marks of the Messiah, the servant of God given in Isaiah, in the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, it says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's son, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom. This was going to be a distinguishing mark of the Messiah, a distinguishing mark of the servant of the Lord. The spirit of wisdom would rest upon him. He would be known by his wisdom. And so we read in Luke 2.40, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And Luke 2.52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And Matthew 13.54, And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom? And then in Colossians 2, 3, Paul sums it up as only the apostle Paul can with these words, that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the son of David. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of true Israel, who's not ethnic but spiritual. And Jesus Christ possesses great wisdom. And we can say this. Jesus Christ was and is the wisest king that Israel ever had. And why is this? Because Jesus spoke about Solomon's wisdom. Jesus referred back to the historical event when the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, if you remember that. In Luke chapter 11, he spoke it to condemn the people who were listening to him but not believing him. And he said this, The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What's greater than Solomon? What could be greater than Solomon's wisdom? Who possesses wisdom greater than Solomon? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) He was saying, if they came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon, they should be coming from the ends of the universe to listen to me. My My wisdom so far goes farther than, I can't forget the word, surpasses, so far surpasses the wisdom of Solomon. If people came from farthest parts of the world to listen to Solomon, every single person in this room, every single person who's ever existed in the world should be flocking to Jesus Christ to hear his wisdom. And we're not going to turn there because we don't have the time. The word of God is so rich. I have a bunch of passages here in Isaiah that speak of how, what what the rule of the Messiah is like. What the rule of the Messiah is like. And it speaks of, and I'm going to summarize it, it's Isaiah Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, and it speaks of the justice that's going to be promoted during the Messiah's reign. The, The eternal righteousness that will mark out the Messiah's reign. The equity that will be the hallmark of the Messiah's reign, the banishment of the wicked that will be a fruit of the Messiah's reign, the peace and the safety that will be the result of this Messiah's reign, 
The propagation of the knowledge of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. That'll be the result of the Messiah's reign. Uniting all the nations under his banner. This great unifying activity that he will be promoting under the Messiah's reign. The gentleness and compassion he will demonstrate to his subjects. And then the wise law that he'll propagate and he'll instruct his people in. And again, you hear this. You're like, what, what an amazing reign. What an amazing reign. This is what characterizes the reign of the Messiah, even in this age, but certainly in the age to come, in its fulfillment, in its consummation. Why is it that the kingdom of Israel will be so blessed? Well, it's partly because of the great wisdom of her king. And this is where I want to tie in Solomon's wisdom with what resulted from it. Why is it that the people of God were so blessed? Why is it that there was justice and righteousness and prosperity and good international relations? It wasn't just that God superintended those things. It's that God gave Solomon wisdom to make decisions that would cause those things to happen. We could say, why is it that so many of those things may be absent from our country? Because wisdom's not there. And why is it that the reign of the Messiah will be marked out by all these amazing characteristics that should make us jealous and so extremely desirous to be part of that kingdom? Well, it's because its, it's king is the wisest king that Israel ever had. He always knows, knows what's best, and he's always doing what's best. And therefore, dear friends, I want to close with a couple quick words of application here this morning. First of all, For those of you in here who are citizens of that kingdom, who are part of true spiritual Israel, who are part of that great nation, that that treasured possession of God, that chosen people of God, you need to rejoice that you are ruled by someone so wise. I mean, isn't it so easy to kind of get down and depressed over the fact that we're ruled by unwise people in this age? Step back for a second and consider who your real king is, the real kingdom that you're a part of. And how his great wisdom is ordering everything just perfectly. There's not one single decision, no matter how small that he made, that was ever the wrong decision. And he's working things out exactly how they need to be for the perfect good of all his people that he rules over. There's peace. There's prosperity in every way. The blessings that will come to you and I as a result of being ruled by this wise king are incalculable. And they're eternal. Rejoice, dear people of God, that you are ruled by someone so wise. Like Solomon, he cares deeply about his people. He views himself as a servant to his people. He desires to bless his people. And that's all demonstrated chiefly in his cross, isn't it? It's all demonstrated chiefly in his cross. Foolishness to the world, but the wisdom of God. Foolishness to the world, but the wisdom of God. He cares deeply about his people. And he has God's support, just like Solomon did. He has God's support. Jesus is the ultimate son of David, who God promised to establish his kingdom. It's not going to fail. And if there's anybody who knows how to discern between good and evil, which is the most significant act of discernment that can ever occur, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So rejoice in the fact that you were ruled by someone so wise. But secondly, with a ruler so wise... Be in awe and be confident in him. In other words, go to him. There are people in our day and age, it's like, I don't trust those people. I want to stay away from them. I I can't feel like I can appeal to them. Your ruler is so wise. There's no reason you shouldn't go to him constantly. 
Help me. Give me advice. Give me counsel. And that counsel found exactly right here. Found right here. The wisdom of God. Be confident in him. And when you think to the future, again, you think to the future of America, you might be like, I'm not sure about it, right? What's going to happen? Next generation, two generations from now? That's because you don't have confidence in the rulers. But when you think about the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he as the ruler, the king of Israel, is making every decision in the wisest way possible, we have utter confidence that his kingdom will ultimately succeed and will conquer over all and last forever. Thirdly, with a ruler so wise, make sure that you submit to his rule and his government. Imagine somebody in Solomon's day saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a march on Jerusalem. And I know better. And the judgments a king is making are not wise and smart, and etc. People are like, what are you talking about? You can't hold a candle to this guy. Right? I mean, people coming from the ends of the earth to hear his wisdom, you probably just felt dumb standing there, even if he wasn't saying anything, right? Well, if that's the way they felt in the presence of Solomon, what about the Lord Jesus Christ? And my dear friends, this is how you should feel. Whatever he says, I do it. Wherever he tells me to go, I go. I submit, I bow down, I worship, I obey. I mean, I'm, are we wiser than him? I mean, it's like, listen, you don't have to go to the ends of the earth to hear his wisdom, do you? It's, it's, and if you don't have a Bible, as mentioned, you can grab one at the end of the pew if you're a visitor here. I don't know who his visitor is, who is a regular member, but you can grab a Bible. You don't have to go to the ends of the earth. You go to the end of the pew. You grab it, you take it home, and you read it. And you say, this is the word of God. And you soak it up and you eat it up and you treasure it. And you say, like the queen of Sheba said, how blessed it is for all those who listen to the, to the wisdom of the king of Israel. And I say this because sometimes, let's confess, we don't want to obey, do we? It's hard to obey. But remember, the commands of God, the law of God, is the wisest law, the wisest thing the human being could ever do. And let me close then with this. I don't know any, if there's anyone in here this morning who is, let's put it this way, not a citizen of the kingdom of Israel. You're not ruled by the king. You're not part of that grand and glorious, peaceful, righteous kingdom. Why would you not want to be part of that kingdom? It would be like someone looking on in Israel during Solomon's day and be like, who wants to be that rich? Who wants to be that much at peace? Who wants to have their king's rule with justice? I'd rather go to a corrupt government, be part of a land where, where the judges are bribed and where they make bad decisions and where everybody's poor. And, I mean, right? That's like foolishness. <laughs> but that's what every unbeliever is doing right now. You're choosing to be ruled by Satan? Y- yourself and sin? I mean, that's, that's death. That's destruction. That's poverty, spiritual poverty. It's devastation. Why wouldn't you come to be ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ and be part of this grand and glorious kingdom? Dear friend, I appeal to you, be reconciled to the Lord through the blood of Jesus Christ by his cross that you may enter into this grand and glorious kingdom and be ruled by the wisest king of Israel. Amen. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer together. Our great God in heaven, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ even now sits on his throne and reigns and rules in wisdom. We thank you that so many of us here this morning have been brought and made part of that kingdom. 
Lord, make us more faithful subjects who bow before his wisdom, who see his wisdom, who seek his wisdom. And we pray that if there are any there, here this morning, I should say, who, who are not part of his kingdom, who have not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, who think that the kingdom they're part of right now is better and, and ruled in a better way and will, will bring them better results, Lord, please rip off the, the, the glasses that are clouding their vision and remove their folly and cause them quickly to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance that they may be saved and that they may be ruled by the wisest King of Israel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Uh, I just want to say thank you to Caleb. Uh, I want to say thank you to Amos. I knew I was going to make that mistake today. Actually, Amos, please send our regards to your wife and your children and to uh, Inglewood Baptist Church. Thank you for preaching today. Um, definitely going to recommend that you come back. Um, are you available next week? <laughs> That's a
No. So, yeah, thank you again, Caleb. And thank Caleb for being your brother for us. Thank you, Amos. Thank you. Um, I just want to remind everybody that today is uh, Sunday Social. Uh, we'll be having lunch in the chapel building, so please come and join us there. And I, I just also want to say, um, if the preaching of the Word of God had touched your heart today, and you recognize that you are not um, sitting under the king of all heaven and all earth, uh, the great wise king, Jesus Christ, and, and you want to talk to somebody about it, um, sure that Amos is available, and uh, myself, I'll make myself available after church. Please come to us and, and talk to us about that. Uh, let's close in prayer. God, you are holy, holy, holy. You uh, speak your word to us, to our hearts. You open our eyes to your glory. Lord, praise you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are our everything. Uh, God, please bless us as we go. Please keep us safe. Please keep us close to you. Um, Lord, we just want to say that uh, we love you. Uh, we love your word. Um, we love that you are our king. Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.